Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us and how beautiful it is. We ask that you just guide and lead us as we look at your word and, and let us see what you would have us see from these and, and guide us. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 14. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick with, of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed of devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken, of, spoken by Elias the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So let's look at this for just a moment. We've got a little bit here to, to glance at. Uh, Jesus has been healing. He healed the centurion. He healed the leper. And he was marveling at the uh, centurion's uh, faith in the last, uh, chap, uh, last time we met. And then he goes and he goes to Peter's house. And he goes to Peter's mother-in-law who is sick with a fever. And he heals her. And you look at what happened with her. She immediately rose and ministered unto them. Now, this has multiple things and that we're going to look at for just a quick statement. Um, if you were raised Catholic, you were taught that Peter was the first pope and the popes and, the, and priests don't get married. And this is kind of an interesting fact that Peter had, was married and had family. <laughs> and it's also a statement that Jesus was not opposed to family because you know, there's some people that say that Jesus was opposed to having families, and here's a good picture. Peter had family, and other disciples probably had families. So we just wanted to bring those kind of points up. But the really interesting thing is his, Peter's mother-in-law was so sick that she was in bed, and you know, we might even say kind of dying. You know, she was sick enough that she could not serve the guests in the home. And for a good mother in that day, a good wife in that day, that's a pretty big deal to have guests in your house and not be able to serve them. And uh, Jesus touched her and it says that she immediately got up and she ministered unto them. She made dinner, she prepared, you know, she prepared their meals. And I just think about this, you know, on their healing, people tended to get up and want to serve. And it shows you how complete the healings were that Jesus did. These were not just partial healings. It, he gave them not just the healing of their sickness, but their strength back. And if you think about this, how many times when, you, when you're sick do you come, you feel better, but you're not fully strong yet. You're not really sick, but you're not... <laughs> you don't feel like cooking dinner. You don't feel like getting up and cooking dinner. You don't feel like cleaning house. You don't... You know, you're, you're not sick, but you're not strong yet. And when Jesus healed people, we see them getting up and doing things. Uh, when we get to the story about the lame man's friends drop, you know, setting him down from the, from the ceiling, what did he say? Get up, take up your bed, and go. His healing was complete. When Peter and John prayed for the lame man at, temp, at the uh, gate beautiful of the temple, what does it say? They lifted him up on his feet. And he went jumping and leaping and praising God is what it says in the, in the scriptures. I mean, he was so excited and he had strength to go and move around. And, you know, have you ever thought about some of these miracles that Jesus did? The man, lame from birth, that he healed, gets up and walks. 
have you ever thought about how big a deal that was? He did not have to learn to walk. Jesus did multiple miracles at the same time. He, he gave him the strength in his legs to walk and basically gave him the skill to walk. When, when he healed the blind man, think about this. A blind man born from birth all of a sudden sees things. How are they going to interpret anything they see? There's another gift that God gave them when he healed them. He actually gave them the ability and the and knowledge on, you now know what you're seeing. And so we sometimes think of these miracles as smaller than they really are when we, when we come to them. And here he says, I'm going, he touches her, just touches her hand, and she gets up and serves. And then it goes on to say, And when evening was come, they brought to him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled what what Isaiah the prophet said, himself took all our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So the the verse that they're referring to in Isaiah is Isaiah 53, 4, if you want to look that up later on. But it talks about him healing, healing infirmities and diseases. And it says, when evening was come, all these people were brought in with these ailments. And it specifically says those that were possessed with devils. And, you know, this is one of those things. In our day and age, we don't really look at people being possessed with devils, but I'm sure that there are many that are possessed with devils. And here we're seeing, in, in this condition, they said the body was filled with a demon. The demon... De, uh, dethrones your own reason and the demon rules and expresses their personality through the individual. And I think if you think uh, there are people you probably know that have probably shown you demonic activity. They just, they get angry for really no reason whatsoever. They're extremely uh, bitter and vindictive to the point where it's just ridiculous. And they can get angry and very strong. And we're going to look at that later on in, in this chapter of the man possessed. And it talks about him breaking iron, iron chains, which is something humans don't do. So, but Jesus took these demons and he cast out the demons. And the power that he used, just his word, he told him to get out. And it's amazing as we look at the demons, the demons always recognized who Jesus was. And we'll see that conversation later on. But they recognized him. They knew that he had power. And he kept telling them, be silent, don't speak. He wasn't ready for them to declare who he was until he had ministered over this period of time. And it says that he healed all the sick that came to him or restored to health. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. Jesus was always around people that needed his help. And it appears from what we read that he took time to help all that came to him. And this is something that's pretty amazing. I would probably go crazy if I was Jesus having a crowd around me all the time. He went away from the crowds. He left in the morning. He would get up early in the morning and go pray. And then the, the, the scriptures often tell us he went off early in the morning to pray and the people found him. They went looking for him wherever he went. But he needed time to be with the Father. He needed time to, to spend with them. And there were a handful of times where he took the disciples alone and, so and like fell about. He really wasn't doing much. He was here for a very short time. He knew that he was here for a short time. And he was pouring into others' lives. 
we as Christians really need to take that into mind that we need to be pouring into other people's lives and ministering to them. Do we need some time alone with God? Yes. Do we need time with God in the Word? Yes. But who are we investing into their life? And it becomes critical that we teach what we are taught. And because otherwise it's just, it, it may be life at first, but if we just keep pouring into ourselves and never pour out to other people, it really becomes death. And I've seen people who have done that. They don't, they don't give out. They don't pour out. They don't, they don't talk to other people. But we need to disciple other people. What, whatever we learn, we, there's always somebody that we know more than that we can help minister. And one of the greatest ways to learn something, and this is very true, is to teach somebody else. If you really want to learn a, a, a subject you teach, if you're going to be a good teacher, you have to study what it is you're trying to teach, and you get to know it better. And by knowing it better, you can then minister. When I, <laughs> when I study for these messages that I give, I know I'm only going to teach for an hour, and I know that I'm not going to teach everything I study, but I study for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours to prepare for each one of these. Sometimes a little less, sometimes more, but it can be as much as 10 hours for the, one, for the one session that I teach at a time. But this is something that is important. We go out and we share with others what we've learned. And this is why I encourage everybody. When God shows you something, share it with people. You'll be amazed at how much they're gonna, many people will be blessed by what you share. And it's fun. It's fun to share what you learn because people will, you'll find people saying, wow, that's interesting, or, you know, I'll have to look it, out, you know, look it over, but it sounds good. But we need to be going out and doing that. And it says, the great multitude followed him. Now, in verse 18, we're going to start in 18. Now, when Jesus saw the great multitude about him, he gave commandment to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came to him and said to him, Master, I will follow you where, wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said to him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury the dead. So we're going to look at this. Jesus sees this crowd. It's pushing in on him and the disciples. And, they, and he says, Okay, we're going to go to the other side, the other side of the, lake, uh, of the Galilee. And while he says this, a certain scribe says, Master, I will follow or be a disciple. I will be your disciple, is what he literally says, not just follow. Uh, I will be your disciple wherever you go. Now, I want to think about this. Have you really considered what the word disciple means? Doesn't it mean student? <laughs> it means student. Student of a particular of discipline. Uh, discipline or a person or thing. Uh, in the college system, you used to be called disciples of, and you studied disciplines. Yeah. Now we call them majors, and you're, and you're called students, but they used to be called disciples of a discipline. And this is what this scribe is saying. Jesus, I will, I will study under you. I will follow you. I will believe where, what, you're, what, what you're teaching wherever you go. Jesus' answer is kind of interesting. He goes, well, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Are you going to follow me? That's my question. Is, is what did he mean by that? What he's saying? That's what he's saying. He's, 
It appears that everywhere Jesus went, he stayed with other people. Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he stayed, if he was in Nazareth, he probably stayed with his mom and, and her house. Uh, here he's staying at Peter's house. Um, that, that he's trying to tell him there's not a home. I really think that he's also saying, this is not our home. This world is not our home. I think it's the spiritualization of this. This is not our home. We're not... We're not, yeah, I think it's more spiritual as well as physical. Uh, but he's saying that because this is not our home, we should never feel comfortable in it. And here he's saying he didn't have a home, and it appears that nowhere in the New Testament does it say that he went to his own home. So apparently when he became a preacher, he was a literal itinerant pastor taking wherever, wherever he could get a place to stay that night, he would stay there and and people open their homes to him. And we see this over and over. People open their homes to him. And uh, it appears that he did not literally have a home. But it's also a spiritual side that we should never feel at home in this world. Because we need to be looking toward heaven. That heaven is our home. And so this man apparently doesn't follow him. Uh, he's going, no, I don't have a home. Because he might have been thinking, well, this guy's got you know, this great following. He's got some nice home someplace. Uh, we hear that all the time. You pastors just you know, are getting, taking all the money from people and you living high on, high on the hog. You know, well, yeah, I guess there are a few uh, televangelists and stuff that are you know, fleecing their people and living very high up. But most pastors live a fairly humble lifestyle because very few pastors make a lot of money. The average church in America is only about 100 people. And that's barely enough to people to support a full-time pastor at a lower-end uh, pay. Now, the bigger churches, you can be paid, you know, paid more. But this man's probably thinking, okay, Jesus, well, I, want to, I want to see your home. I want to see this beautiful home that you must have. Look at all these people around you. You, know, you must be charging them something to get, get these healings because that was what was done. Uh, the Jews had itinerant pastors that would run around and uh, they had exorcists that would run around and, and for a fee you know, excise the demons and, and preach. And so they're looking at Jesus and you must have, you know, all these people around you, you must have something out there that you've earned. And he's saying, I don't have anything. And apparently the man left. Then the next guy says, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father but Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now this sounds very cruel, but you've got to understand one thing that's important here. This man's father wasn't dead yet. The Jews in their day, when they died, they buried them before sunset. So if this man's father was dead, he would not have been out in the middle of the wilderness with Jesus. So basically he's saying, God, I will follow you, but I need to wait until my father dies and I bury him. Then I will follow you is what he's saying. And that's why Jesus is saying, let the dead bury themselves. You know, when, if you're going to follow me, follow me today. And this gets into the idea that today is the day of salvation, not, you know, God, I will follow you. You know, when my kids grow up, God, I'll, I'll go and do something for you. When, when I've done my work and I'm ready to retire, I'll do something for you. And we hear this a lot with people. God, when such and such happens, I will serve you. And this is what this man's saying. God, I, Jesus, I really like your message. I want to follow you. Uh, but I'm going to, I got to stick around. My dad's, getting, my dad's getting up there in age. He's going to be dead soon. And, 
And when he dies, I'll come and follow you. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. If you're going to delay following God, you're never going to follow him. I've heard this over and over in my lifetime. When such and such happens, when I get established in my job, I can serve God because I won't be so busy trying to get my promotion. Well, they get their promotion and then they're busy trying to get the next promotion or get that promotion sta stabilized. And this is something I've heard so many times. When? When this happens, when this happens, when this happens, I'll serve God. When I get, re you know, when I get uh, the business all in place, I can serve God. When my family grows up, I can serve God. Well, my kids are just too little. I can't, I can't serve God. All kinds of excuses that people will make not to serve God. And they'll keep making those mistakes because you choose to serve God. And it's something, if he is Lord and Master, you choose to, to serve him. This is what I said. I love being a pastor and being paid a little bit for what I've always done all my life. I'm not doing any, much more than I've done in, my, in any other time. I still teach. I still visit people in the hospital. I still visit people in their homes. I just get a little, little bit of pain now to do so. But it's not changed. And this is what he's saying here. What is it going to take for you to serve me, is what Jesus is saying. When are you going to choose to serve him? Or are you going to keep postponing it? In another one of the versions, he goes, you know, there's all these other excuses that people make. And so we look at this and say, people can make excuses to keep from serving God. And not that they don't love him, not that they don't even want to serve him, but they just, is he number one, or is he number two, or three, or four, or five, or six down your line? And if he's not number one, you're going to make excuses to not serve him because other things are more important. That does not mean that you serve him to the point of ignoring your family and ignoring other things, but he still needs to be number one. He has to be what's most important in your life. And this is what, there's an acronym for, called joy, and it's Jesus, others, and yourself. For If you want to be, have joy, you serve Jesus, you serve others, and then you serve whatever left over time for yourself. And Jesus and God have to be first. Above family, above everything else, he has to be number one. Family is important, and he's going to teach us all about having families in the scriptures and treating our wives and our, our spouses correctly. He'll teach us how to deal with our children. But he has to be number one. By setting him number one, then everything else falls in line. And then for family, the husband or wife needs to be the next in that line that they need to be taken care of and then the kids and then whatever else you want to, however else you want to put your life in place. Because I've seen too many people and myself included when I was younger, I put work ahead of my family and then I got to a place where work went ahead of my, ahead of God because I've put so much place, pressure on myself to do these things. Now I would tell you I'm doing it for my family and for God so I can, you know, support God and all the, you know, with my offering, but it never, you know, when they, when they, when God and the family gets pushed down, work is not going to answer the feeling later on. It uh, is going to leave you empty. But we need to keep that in order. And Jesus is saying, come follow me. <laughs> follow me. And don't have all these other excuses in front of him. Verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him, 
And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, and insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, this is kind of an interesting story. First off, we've got to remember that in verse 18, Jesus gave the commandment that they were going to the other side. Jesus had said, we're going. Now, we look at this, and a lot of people will say, because Jesus rebuked them, that there was a problem. And I'm going to show you what the real problem was here. But the, we want to keep in mind that it says there was a, arose a great tempter, uh, tempest. This is a huge storm. And you read here, it says that the, insomuch that the ship was covered by the waves. All right, that means that the waves were taller than the mast on the ship. They were coming in, splashing into the ship. You know, we've, if you've ever been in a ship in a storm, you kind of know what this is talking about. This is a huge storm. This is the kind that capsized boats and sink boats, especially in this small a boat. And we think about this, Many of those fishermen, many of those disciples were fishermen. Okay. They knew factually that they were in trouble. Okay. They knew that this boat was probably going to sink because they were in a storm they should not have been in to survive. How many times do we look by sight and say, we're in trouble? And this is where I'm coming with this. These disciples looked at the facts. It was a fact that this boat was in trouble. Now, Jesus had said, we're going to the other side, so by faith they should have understood that they were to go to the other side. The Son of God had said, you're going to the other side. They haven't yet had that much experience with him. They don't, they're, not, they're only beginning to start understanding his power. And they, we see Jesus is at peace. He's asleep. He knows they're going to the other side. He's not worried about it at all. And he gets up and he says, why are you fearful? And he rose and he rebuked the, wind, the winds and the sea. And this rebuke literally means that he chided them. You'd almost picture this as he's standing up and talking to this little child saying, behave, you're not supposed to act this way. This is the kind of word that is being used. He's, he's chiding the wind and the sea saying, behave, I'm here, calm down. And the result of his speaking to them and chiding them was a great calm, not just not just a small bit of calm, it was, went from a total storm to a flat sea with no, no waves whatsoever. That's quite a miracle in and of itself. And the men marveled. They marveled to see what it was that they saw. They were, they were in the middle of a storm. He stands up, says, be calm, and, they, and, the, and the winds and the sea stop. And really we want to look at this because we are to have faith in what God says is true even when everything that we see goes against what he says is true. And I want to apply this to our life because remember I've said many times we react to what we think is bad in our life when God says it's going to be for good. We need to have faith in what he says always. 
And when we are absolutely sure that he has said something, no matter what comes against us, then we go, God, you've, you've said something, I'm going to stand with it. And this is what life is going to be all the time for us. We're going to have, God's going to speak to us. The storm of life is going to come in. And we're going to be tested to see, are we going to be faithful? Are we going to be faithful to what God said? And that can be to just about anything. The, these would-be disciples that said, God, uh, I'll follow you, but first let me do whatever it is. He's saying, no, follow me. Everything else will fall in place when we follow him. When, when we choose to start obeying God in some area of our life and all hell breaks loose in our life, and we go, uh, God, uh, I, I was trying to do a good thing. I was going to follow you and look at all the stuff that's going bad. And he says, are you going to keep trusting me? Are you going to keep trusting me? I've said it this way. When you learn, when, you, when God is teaching you about love and challenges you to love, love more, he's going to put the, somebody that's very hard to love in your life and challenge you. Are you going to love? If he teaches you forgiveness, he's going to put you in a position where you have to give forgiveness to somebody. Whatever it is, this is a storm that comes into your life. He says, here's, here's where I want you to work in, and here's the storm. Am I going to have faith that, it's going to, that he's going to get me through it? Or am I going to call Jesus, I need help, and then he has to calm the storm and let us go through it again? The point I'm making is if we don't go through the storm successfully, he's going to make sure that we go through the storm over and over again until we finally make it through that storm without having to say, help. And again, this is, we look at this, the disciples saw a real fact. The waves are bigger than the boat, the boat is filling with water. And they're calling out, you know, yes, Jesus, you said we're going to the other side, but our boat's sinking. They would have made it to the other side one way or the other. Here, though, they get to see his power and this is the power that he does when he steps into our life. When we start messing up our life, he steps in and he calms the storms and says, okay, you're not ready for the storm. We'll calm the storm, carry you through, try to prepare you for the next storm that comes your way. But this is something we see. And they marveled. They were in awe that he had power over nature. And that's quite a, quite a power to have. Have you ever prayed for the weather to be changed? I've had reasons to pray for good weather when a storm comes coming and there was a big event at the church. We actually got together sometimes and prayed, God, hold the storm off for this event. And oftentimes the storm would be held off. It would be miserable up until the time the event started. It would be miserable after the event and during the event everything seemed to go well. I've seen it happen. I've seen the power of God over nature. Now people go, oh, that's, con you know, you were just the consequences, you know, you were lucky. No, it was, we prayed and God delivered. And we need to keep this in mind. When we pray and God answers our prayer, we need to give him thanks and say, yes, God, you did it. The world will look on and say, oh, you were, boy, you really got lucky. You, I know you prayed, but you really got lucky that that happened. No, it happened as God set it up. I think there's times when we only pray if the answer is favorable. Like we pray for something and it's favorable. You mean we only pray if we kind of know it's going to happen? If we even remember to thank him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the bigger problem that we have is that we've got to remember when God answers a prayer, we give him thanks. 
But to be able to do that, you really have to pray specifically enough that you know that the prayer was answered. A lot of people go, God, I want you to bless me. Well, what's a blessing? Yeah, it could be, I, I woke up tomorrow. I was blessed. I woke up. I, I didn't go to heaven. I don't know if that's a blessing or not. But, you know, but I lived another day. I made it home from the meeting is a blessing. So we have to be able to define when we're praying, you know, praying with some, some specifics that we know that the prayer has been answered. And I'm not saying we name it and claim it. You know, God, I want a silver Maserati in my driveway tomorrow is not what I'm talking about. You know, it's, uh, but if you're in a place where you need a car, God, I need a good working car at the price that I can afford or free or whatever it needs to be. And then watch God work. And it's amazing to watch him deliver what we need to say, this is for you. Praying for people's salvation and watching them get saved. Now, sometimes it takes years. My great-grandmother prayed for my dad for 32 years before he finally got saved, and, and it was a pretty amazing thing when she brought him into, into the church. She said, this is, my grand, this is my grandson. We've been praying for him for, for all these years. That's a specific prayer. And then you say, yes, God, you answered that prayer. But we also need to be faithful sometimes to, to be on that. But we need to know that God wants to answer prayers and he wants to bless us and we need to be able to ask for God for reasonable things within his name. What raises his reputation? What is good for his reputation? What will help him, help him be lifted up? And if I pray for things that just make me get lifted up and me look good, those aren't prayers that are going to be answered necessarily. He wants to have prayers that say, how does he get lifted up? How does he get blessed? God, I want a million dollars. Well, what are you going to do with a million dollars? Now, I'm not saying a million dollars would be wrong if you're going to use it right. A church asking for a million dollars to build a new building and, and a new ministry would be something that's worthwhile because Christ would be lifted up. Me as an individual asking for a million dollars probably isn't going to lift Jesus up other than the, the offerings and stuff that get made out of it. Does that mean God won't do that? No, not necessarily, but he's going to say, how am I going to be lifted up? How is my name going to be elevated by this action? And we need to keep that in mind always. He needs to be blessed. He needs to be lifted up. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, Jesus said. So we lift him up. We live lives that lift him up. We lift him up in word. We lift him up in prayer. God, I want to see you glorified. This is why I say, for me in this church, I don't care how big this church gets or how small this church gets as long as God is lifted up. If people get saved and go other places, praise God, they're going to another church. But God will be lifted up. I want to build his kingdom. Because I'm not here to build a kingdom for Ralph. I'm here to build a kingdom for Jesus and see him glorified in all aspects. All right, verse 28. And when he was come on to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no man might pass by that, by that way. And behold, they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, thou son of God? Aren't you, are you come here to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him saying, if you cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. 
And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything that had befallen the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart from their coast. This is an interesting story when we get into this. Uh, this is also told in, in Mark and in, in Luke, uh, Mark 5 specifically, if you want to look into it, and we're going to kind of look into this. So he comes into the, the area of the Gergadians, and there met him two men possessed with demons. And it says, they came out of the tombs exceedingly fierce. And this literally means dangerous. These guys were not to be tangled with. And in Mark it tells us, that, they had, that the people had often bound them in chains and fetters. And we're talking nice, heavy chains. And these men with the, that were demon-possessed kept breaking the chains. They know they were not controlled. It also said that they were naked. They were just running around. They were not, basically not human in their thinking. And they had supernatural power. They could snap the fetters with no problems. They, they were not controlled, and they, and they came... Basically, here's Jesus landing on, the, on it, and they came charging at him. We want to look at this. This is the way that these men were. They were not uh, in that. Let's read. I'm going to read Mark 5 just to give us that story. Mark 5, verse 1. And they came over on the other side of the sea into the country of the Galdrians, and when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, not with chains, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, thou son of, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God that you torment me not. And Jesus said, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is your name? And he answered him, My name is Legion, for, there, for we are many. And he besought him that he would not send him away out of the country. But now there were in the nigh into the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. This is kind of interesting. They come, and it comes to Jesus, worshiping him. The devils know who Jesus is. It's very clear that they knew who Jesus is because they had seen him before. They had seen him before they were cast out of heaven. They were, remember, the, the devils and the demons and all these other, and Satan were angelic beings before they were cast out of heaven. They were created as angelic beings. And as far as we understand, Satan was the number one angel over all the angels before he fell. And he was cast out, and he took a third of the angels with him, and they formed these demons. They have seen Jesus in heaven because Jesus pre-exists time. He, pre, he even pre-exists the angels because he and the Father and the Holy Spirit have always been in existence, and they created all things, including all the spiritual realms. So these angels have seen Jesus. 
And let me get this straight. In this one guy, there's many, many, many deals. Approximately 2,000 to, to drive the swine in one guy. Very large group of demons. We want to look at this. He, this man came out. He was fierce. So fierce, according to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that he broke the chains, kind of like they were just paper chains. I mean, that's literally what he says. He tore them apart. And if you think about fetters, fetters are the big iron part that goes around your wrist and your, and your legs on those things. And he tore those apart, strapped around, and they tried to put him under control. And he just snapped the chains and plucked off the fetters. This is supernatural strength that this guy has. And he's coming to Jesus, and Jesus uh, casts out the demons. But we want to look at this because it's in verse 29, it says, Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Okay, What have we to do with you? And then it says, very interesting, Are you come here to torment us before the time? Now, this struck me in a way that I had to look at this. Have you come to torment us before the time? I looked in about three commentaries. I didn't do a lot. And none of the commentaries commented on that statement at all. And that stood out to me. Come to torment us before the time. The demons know there is a time when Jesus is going to judge them and send them to hell. They know it. This is, the, this is the verse that shows it. They know that there is a time when they're going to be judged. And that's what they're asking. Have you come to judge us before the time? Because they knew it wasn't time. Because they know the scripture. They know the scriptures. They know the, the, end, the second coming and the, and the day of tribulation to the, to the world. They know that Satan is going to rule for a short period of time. Now why they are following, I don't know. It's kind of, you know. Kind of bizarre to think about that, but they know there's a time when they're going to be totally judged. And this is kind of an amazing, amazing thing. There's, they're not even out there with a hope that they're going to win. And this is one of the things I've said. Satan's goal is not necessarily to win. Right now his goal is to hurt God. He wants to take as much of his precious creation, mankind, away from God as he possibly can. And I've said this before, he's not trying to build a kingdom in hell because hell is a prison. It's not Satan's kingdom. It is his prison. He will be a prisoner in hell, not, not king and ruler of hell. He is a prisoner. His goal is just to take as many people away from God as possible in the process. Basically hurting God. God, you, you love these people. I'm going to take his way as many of your people as I can take. So we know they know an end is coming. And it says that right there. Have you come to torment us before our time? And then it says a good way off. And we don't know how far a good way off. There was a herd of swine feeding. Now I want to put this in kind of context. They are still in Israel. And here's a herd of swine being tended by the people in Israel. And they're not allowed to even eat this stuff, which means they're selling it somewhere to, out, to, to go, go out there. But I don't know if this struck you, but 2,000, a herd of 2,000 pigs in Israel being raised by the people that can't eat the, eat the meat that they're raising. They probably sold them to Gentiles. Oh, I'm sure they sold them to Gentiles because there's no one else they could have sold them to. 
And this is the north, this is the northeastern part of Israel, so the Gentiles are really close. But you think about this. They're not supposed to touch the pigs. They're not supposed to eat the pigs. They're not supposed to do anything with the pigs. And they're raising a herd of 2,000 pigs, give or take a few. Huh? They're fixing to be upset. They're going to lose their livelihood. The Gad Gadarenes are on the northeast side of, the, of it, just up on the northeast side. Northeast side. Right, they're up, they're up around Decalopolis. I don't know how I got that in my head. I was always thinking it was on the northwest side. Yeah. I think that's where they, uh, where they fed the you know, 5,000. Well, it's somewhere in there. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. But they're, in, but they're still in Israel, and they're up where... They're obviously selling these to Gentiles. I mean, there's no, no question that they're selling them to Gentiles because there's nobody, nobody in Israel that's buying, you know, that's a Jew buying the pigs. So, but it's just, I get this picture. They're in Israel, and here's a herd of 2,000 pigs, give or take, according to Mark, approximately 2,000 pigs. And they're going, if you're going to send us away, send us into these pigs. Which is kind of an interesting thing that demons would rather be in some living thing than being cast out completely. All right? They probably prefer man because man has rationality and it's a greater victory for them to take over man and knock the reason down. And, and I've only met one person that I know for sure was demonically uh, oppressed because of their actions. I think I've met others, but I'm not absolutely sure in some cases. Huh? What prompted the pigs to go into the water and drown? I think they just went insane. Pigs are smarter than humans. They will kill themselves rather than be possessed by a demon. Uh, because it says, again, we go back to the word possessed. They dethrone reason and put themselves in their place in this destructive nature of the, the demons to kill. I think man, because of our self-preservation that God puts in us, are not as put, not as likely to kill ourselves because we're demonically impressed. There's that battle going on between the, the human spirit, uh, soul and the, and the demon. We fight, we fight harder. We see this whole process that, that God is putting in that these people were, he was really possessed and he was in trouble. And it says in Margaret, he howled at nights and he was, driving, you know, he was driving people crazy with all of his yelling and hollering and they were trying to put him under control. And this one says that they were exceedingly fierce or dangerous. They probably had killed, you know, or attempted to kill people. Because the demons will, and Jesus said when he cast out the demons in this one man, he says, you need, you need to fill that area, okay? Because he says when the demons go out, they'll run around the world and looking for some place to come back into, and they'll come back to the person that they were cast out of. If the Holy Spirit isn't living there, they'll come back in, and he'll bring friends with him. That's the description house is clean and if we've cleaned the house now fill it with basically fill it with the holy spirit or you will be refilled by more and your end place will be worse than your previous one all right so we look at this in verse 32 then behold the whole herd of swine ran violently over the steep place or the precipice basically they ran off a cliff which is something that pigs are not going to normally do unless they have been made insane this is what demonic if possession does, it makes somebody look and act insane, whether it's human or animal in this case. 
and the animals, rather than be insane, killed themselves. It might have been the demons trying to get them to kill themselves. I don't know. But we look at this answer, and they that kept them, in verse 33, fled and went their way into the city and told everything, everything, and what was befallen to the, to the possessed of devils. So they're going, they're telling them what happened. Yeah, these guys came out, this man out there, you know, cast the demons out. They went into the pigs. The pigs ran off the cliff. Going back to Mark real quick, verse 15, 515. And when they were come to Jesus to see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is kind of an interesting thing. Here's a man that they've been trying to bind up, get him in his right mind, get him under control. And when they come to see him, and he's got clothes on, he's in his right mind, he's not crazy, they were afraid. That is a mind-boggling thought for me, but yet how many times when does this happen? Somebody gets saved, they get their life put together, and the world gets afraid of, of the God who's made this person walk straight. Our family gets afraid of us when we get, you know, we get God, you know, whether they're afraid we're going to bug them or whatever it is they're afraid of. People get afraid when God does the miraculous. And it's kind of an amazing thing. They came in verse, in verse 16 and they saw it told how it befell on him that he was possessed with the devils and, how, and also concerning the swine. They have a big problem with these swine. <laughs> Yeah, everything's focused on these swine. They're more concerned about the swine than they are the man who's been released from the demons. <laughs> yeah, no more him. Well, no more money coming in anyway. And they began to pray for him to depart from their coast. So often the world is more concerned with something that they feel they've lost than the miraculous salvation of the human being that gets saved. Somebody might look at somebody who's gotten saved and all they see is that they lost their drinking partner. <laughs> oh, you got religion now. You're not going to drink with me. You're not going to hang out and do drugs with me. You're not going to do this with me. You're not going to do that. They're more concerned with what they have lost in the world than the, the miraculous salvation of the individual and their cleansing. We need to be very careful as Christians that we keep our mind focused on the miracle of what God's done when he changes somebody. Because there is great blessing in that. When somebody comes to Christ, there is salvation and the angels in heaven rejoice at the coming of one to the to God. And yet the world is going to say, go away, get out of here. The man in, in Mark 5 wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus said, no, go back home and tell people what's happened to you. So many times we as Christians are told, Stay around the people that you know and tell them what happened. He does not want us isolating ourselves amongst other Christians and in a church or, or a monastery or whatever else you might think of. You know, some, some religious complex. Go hide yourself behind some walls and stay away from all people. That's been done in the church over, over time and at different periods of, it, of its time. Get saved and go, especially in the Catholic Church, there were different monks and stuff, and they would go hide away in the monastery and never, never talk to anybody, not, you know, and just pray and, pray and study, pray and study, pray and study. Well, all wonderful, except who are you telling about Jesus if you do that? And oftentimes Jesus would say, go. This man was told, stay 
and tell them what happened. When he went to the woman in Samaria, stay and tell people what's happening. Well, the demons were always told, don't say anything, because they were saying who he was. They were saying, you are the son of God, just like this one says, you are, you know, what have we to do with you, son of God? There's many places we're going to see in the Gospels where he said, I am God. Contrary to what you're going to hear people say, that he never said he was God. Then he said, before Abraham was, I am, and the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why did they pick up stones? Because they knew that he claimed to be God. Before Abraham was, I am am is the name of God and he knew they knew that he was claiming to be God at that point so he said many times in there maybe not the direct words I am God but he said many times through the scriptures how come they couldn't figure that out were they so far removed figure out that he was God what ends up happening when somebody is in power and anything comes along whether it's good or bad especially good that is going to dethrone you from your power, you're going to fight hard against it, even if it's for the good of the people, unless you really love your people. And most people love their power, especially in, in governmental positions, love their power more than they care for the people that they're they ruling over. They, they, rub their, they love their position. I've seen it even in churches where there's pastors or deacons or teachers who love their position so much that even if somebody comes along it would be better at the job than they, they are not going to give it up because they're not going to lose their position. And that means, and I always told people, you think you can do it better than me? Fine, I'll go find something else to do because there's plenty to do in God's kingdom. I wasn't worried about it. If somebody came along who was better at administrating Sunday school to me, <laughs> be my guest, make a better Sunday school, be my guest. I'll go, I'll go do this other ministry because there's plenty of ministries to do in a church. But that's not the attitude of everybody who has positions in church. A lot of times they're going, I'm all tied up in this. This is who I am. I'm the, I'm the deacon of the church. I, I, can't, I can't step down from this position. Or I'm the this of the church, and I can't step down from this. Uh, go to your head. And it can go to your head. And, and this is why true leadership in a church is based upon being a servant. And this is what Jesus did with the disciples. He was always the servant. He wasn't demanding that they... They served him, even though he could have. He was God. He could have said, I want all of you guys just to serve me. He led by the example of being the servant. On the last Passover he had with the disciples, the first thing he did was get up and wash their feet. And again, we don't really realize what that means. It's like, okay, so he washed their feet. The person who washed your feet, that job was given to the least respected servant of the house. It was given to the person who you were afraid to let them handle dishes because they would break the dishes. You, you were afraid of letting them serve the food because they would spill the food. This was the job you gave to the most incompetent servant in your house. They washed the feet. And Jesus goes out and he washes their feet. He's doing the job of the most insignificant it would be the equivalent for us of serving somebody and going in and washing their bathroom that hadn't been cleaned for, for months. Okay, This is how low the job was. And Jesus just did it. What was he trying to show them? You're to be the servant to one another. If you really want to be the leader, you serve. And this is something that we have to be looking at. 
if we're striving to be, get a position just so we can have the title, we're looking at it totally wrong. If we're doing it because we just want to serve God, that is where we should be with it. It's a good thing. And if you're doing it just to have a title, it's bad. When I was in management and I would promote somebody to the next level up, it inevitably went to their, went to their head and they went, went on a power trip on the first two or three shifts. And I'd have to take them aside and go, look, I promoted you because you were a good worker and leader and you had leadership skills. You do not need to let this go to your head. And it happens in the church. Yeah. It's a human condition to take pride and once you get a promotion to go crazy because it's human nature to want to run things and rule things. This happens oftentimes in churches where people get a promotion to do something and all of a sudden they start thinking, look at me, I've got this promotion. I don't, know, I don't really understand completely what it's all about, but it, it happens and I've seen it happen. And, it's, you know, and having been in management so, so many years, I kind of take people aside and go, calm down, you're still a servant, you're still to be. And, but Jesus taught us to be a servant leader. We serve. It should always be a pleasure to serve God and to serve his people. If all you're wanting to do is get a title, the church is not the place that it's going to happen because that's not what a true servant leader does. You can get the title. And like I say, I love it now that I'm a pastor because I'm not doing anything I've, that I haven't done all my life. I just now have a, a title and a little bit of pay. But it's still no big deal. I'm still, if I wasn't a pastor tomorrow, I would still be in a church <laughs> teaching and, and ministering to whatever level that church would let me minister and teach to and be doing home Bible studies. These people didn't care about this, this man. This man had been healed and they didn't care about him. All they cared about is our 2,000 pigs that just ran off the hill and died. That's all they cared about. And they said, Jesus, leave. Even though you're doing great things and you're helping this person, get out of here. And this is the way many people are. When we, when we minister to people, they'll see and you'll hear them. We love what the church does. We love what, what these Christians do. We love, what, we love how you, know, you bring good around you, but you know, we don't want your religion. Get out of here. Your, your religion bothers us. They disconnect the two because somehow they think we're doing all these great things in our own power somehow, and they don't like the fact that you're bringing God into the picture. The world rejects God because they don't want to have a God. And the reason being, they do not want a God that can tell them what to do. Why do sci many scientists have a problem with creation and they will believe the, the fantasy world of evolution is because if you believe in a creation, you have to believe that there's a God. And if there's a God, his book becomes true and you have to follow what he says. And so they will discount that and, and create a whole fantasy world that does not fit science to avoid having a God. But the world does that all around us. Anything to have, this is why the gospel message is hard for people to understand because it is so simple. You surrender to God and he, do, and he get, makes you a new creation. It's the surrender part that they don't want. And it's the part that we have trouble with most often, totally surrendering ourselves to God in all aspects of our life. And that becomes what we're going to spend the rest of our life learning to do, surrender every part of my life to him. And he'll continue to with great patience to keep working at getting us to surrender the next part of our life and the next part of our life and the next part of our life. It would be wonderful if somehow we could just manage to say, God, I surrender everything.
and end up being perfect and go straight to heaven, just like Elijah and Enoch did. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you go with us. Lord, teach us to be able to share the gospel. Teach us to let you be more and more in charge of our life and allow us to be more and more a servant to others. And we just thank you for all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.